Well, you may open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10. We return again to the story of God's redemption of his people out of slavery and Egypt and into, well, in Exodus context, to Sinai, where God will covenant with them as a people, forming them into a, a covenant people according to his purposes, that out of this people a Savior might come, born under the law, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem all those who are condemned by the law. And so in this epoch, in this era that we're looking at concisely here in the plagues of Egypt, we might see the wonders of his mercy to us who take refuge in Christ. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians 10 verses 21 through 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwelling. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock, too, shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know what, what we shall serve the Lord, with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, you are right. I shall never see your face again. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him for help again this morning. Oh, Lord, it is your word that we come before, so it is you who we desire to hear from. May the words that I speak that do not, that are not consistent with your word and the truth contained in it, be quickly forgotten. Lord, may you constrain even my lips to speak only that which is true, so that, Lord, your people may be blessed by this means of grace. May their faith be enlarged this morning in Christ. To your glory alone. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've been reminding us that we're examining the connection between Pharaoh's question in chapter 5 when he asked, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey 
his voice that I should obey him and let Israel go. And the Lord providentially is taking 10 plagues to answer that question. And so we ask that question along with Pharaoh in some way. Who is like Yahweh? We've seen that the answer to this a number of weeks ago is that the source is in God's revealed word. And then we saw that the fourth plague would stress upon worship being directed toward the Lord alone, limited by his revealed will alone. And then the fifth and sixth plagues display God's righteous judgment upon sinners with a goal that we as those who are found in Christ would wonder at his perfect and sufficient grace. And further along on the, in the seventh plague as a model for God's judgments of unbelievers and relatedly a disciplining of wayward believers throughout the church age. Last time I was before you, I addressed the eighth plague. We saw that Christ's authority is over all situations of life, that he rules over an apparently chaotic world such that suffering does not occur indiscriminately or by chance. And this was with a goal that the believer would be comforted because they would know that whether they live or die, they are Christ and he will be with them. We've been looking at the plagues and we've been recognizing their arrangements as they are 10 plagues, but they are arranged in uh, a group of three groups of three. And this is with a point to highlight the climax of the plagues coming in the next, in the 10th plague. And so these three threes kind of push us towards the 10th plague. They even assume the 10th plague as they come. We've been seeing that a warning preceded the first and second of each group of three, but in the third, as we will see this morning, in the third of each series, no warning is given. And they've served a manifold purpose that they give a public manifestation of the mighty power of the Lord. They were a divine visitation of wrath upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, as well as they were a judgment from God upon the gods or the demons of Egypt, which demonstrated that Jehovah or that Yahweh was high above all gods. They also were to display man's utter inability and dependence as well as God's utter omnipotence and independence. They were a solemn warning to other nations that God would curse those who curse the Israelites. And these plagues were meant to strengthen the people of God and their knowledge of God. It was for them to know better their covenant God. This morning, we'll see in the ninth plague that the believer's deliverance from the domain of darkness is not one to autonomy but one into gracious service to the God that is light. So the believer's deliverance from the domain of darkness is not one to autonomy, but one into gracious service to the God that is light. And we'll see this in the depravity of sin, the grace of God, and the gift of gratitude. We see here this morning in this plague of darkness that's something we much very much relate to for we all were at one time scared of the dark 
We all at one time were laying in our beds, I would assume, and the room was dark, and you saw shadows and figures on the wall because there was just enough light to cast shadowy figures. And we know well that maybe like you, you had that uh, coat that was on a chair or that stuffed animal that was in the corner that became this gruesome beast or this scary figure and only for the lights to come on and to see that it was just a coat or just a bear. For there's something that is understood about darkness and that is it is directly associated with evil or with wickedness. That the darkness in scripture that we come to find is the place where the beasts dwell, where the evil one lurks, where you will uh, be found in the judgment of God. And so it is why even in the creation story, we find God bringing order to darkness. When he takes, when he looks at the um, tumultuous sea, when he looks at the waters and the spirit hovers over the deep and the Lord says, let there be light. Separating the light from the darkness. Showing that though there will be evil, that God, that the evil will not overcome what God has in store for his creation. And we dare not fall into the sin of dualism, which says that there is evil and there is good and there's this cosmic struggle. And it's up to you to vote in for the evil or for the good, for by your votes, by your vote of faithfulness or by your vote of devotion, such will determine the outcome. For God here is showing that he's not just God of the light, but he's also God of the darkness, not of evil as its author, but God over all things as he is sovereign. So we see his control of such creaturely things as light and darkness to show not only to the Egyptians, but especially to the Israelites that he is the one true and living God. We see that in the context of our plague, as we've been going over and seeing how the Lord is judging the gods of Egypt, as it says in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, that one of the gods that he would be judging here with darkness is the Egyptian god of the sun. It was, he was the main god for them, if you will. His title was Ra, and it is understood that Pharaoh himself derived his title from this god with the with the uh, fra meaning the sun. So Pharaoh derives his name from this god Ra, who re is represented by the sun. And so Pharaoh is a inheritor of the sun. He is a, he's a god himself. But there's one place or realm that Pharaoh had, it would have been the sun. His association would have been with the sun. It's assumed that each day as he went down to the water to, to serve the god of the Nile or the gods of the Nile, he was also doing it at daybreak 
when he celebrated the rising of the sun god. For it was each day was thought that this god would travel through the celestial sea in his boat, then descend into the netherworld where he defeated the serpent of chaos to arise anew and victorious every morning. Every day the sun rose for the Egyptian, for them in their false worship was a testimony that their God defeated the underworld and reigned for another day. So we see that when God takes away the light, he doesn't just obscure the sun. I don't think there's a, there's a reason to think that this is a three-day sandstorm or a giant cloud that covers the sun, certainly not an eclipse. I think the Lord takes away light itself. The darkness is described as being able to be felt. I don't know if you've ever been in pitch darkness before with nothing around you, but it's you have no point of reference and you become disoriented. You almost lose your balance because it's so thick and so intense. It's almost like being underwater. One commentator says, not only therefore was the source of light and heat, he says it's eclipsed or taken away from the Egyptians, but the God they worshipped was obscured and his powerlessness was demonstrated. A proof had they but eyes to see that one mightier than the sun, yea, the creator of the sun, was dealing with them in judgment. This darkness that the Lord brings upon the Egyptians was, is described as a thick darkness. It's translated in other places as utter darkness. The ordinary word for darkness is combined with another that usually refers to God's judgment of the wicked. There's a completeness to this darkness that God brings upon the Egyptians. It's interesting that there's also no relief from this darkness. There's an understanding here that there was not even a light by lamp or the darkness was so intense that it could not even be broken by the light of a lamp. Either way, the darkness was intense and overwhelming. A.W. Pink says, and we know this, that God is light. So darkness is the withdrawal of light. Therefore, this judgment of darkness gave plain intimation that Egypt was now abandoned by God. Nothing remained but death itself. The darkness continued for three days. So there would be a full manifestation of God's withdrawal. We know that God does not withdrawing his presence from the earth, for God cannot withdraw his presence, for he's omnipresent, he's ever-present, but that God is in such control over creation that even light itself is in his control. R.C. Sproul is a famous quote where he says, there's not one uh, 
crazy molecule, and I can't remember the, the adjective there, but there's not one autonomous molecule. There's not one rebellious molecule in all of God's creation. Light is in wave and particle form, and it's something that is almost impossible to control. If a, if a scientist was deemed uh, with the task of, of capturing light, not bringing light, in other words, having an artificial uh, uh, production of light, but taking light itself and, and capturing it and holding it. I believe that scientists would laugh at the task. They'd take the money for sure, and they'd more than likely spend it all at the, at the outset, but a true scientist would know it was a futile attempt. But here the Lord shows his power over light, for he harnesses it by withdrawing it from the Egyptians. And this withdrawal points to God's withdrawal of the light of his common grace. And he gives them no relief from the darkness. So that the Israelites who would have eyes to see would know that it wasn't the Egyptians that were their biggest problem. It wasn't that their slavery to Egypt was not what they ultimately needed to be redeemed from, but they needed to be released and freed from the pervasiveness of sin. For sin imprisons the activities of the soul. It renders men unable to accomplish the mission of life. This darkness of the soul can only be removed by Christ. No artificial light can chase it away. Here we see that by there is no artificial light for the Egyptians to drive away the darkness. With the light of God's common grace, men perceive to know much about their world and surroundings. But if the Lord would, would, would withdraw his mercy, his long-suffering, his common grace, they would be reduced to be like beasts, as in Nebuchadnezzar, or to be completely helpless that they would not move at all like the Egyptians. Such is the depravity of man in their soul. Their soul is this utter darkness. Contained in, in the soul of man is hatred for the light. Man in his state in Adam is unable to see his urgent need of a savior. He is spiritually in total darkness. And neither the affections of his heart the reasonings of his mind, nor the power of his will can dissipate this awful darkness. It is only when light comes to the sinner through the word of God applied by the spirit that this darkness is expelled. Here we see the Egyptians with no eyes to see, with eyes to see, but unable to see because the eyes of their souls were darkened. We see uh, Pharaoh as a representation of, of evil and the fallenness of man 
who does not call now to Moses and ask Moses to pray for him, to offer sacrifice for him. He says, get away from me. Such is the darkness of humanity apart from Christ. This utter darkness that the Lord brings upon the Egyptians is for us to see that God, the seriousness of our sin and, the, uh, and to know that God is not indifferent to our sin, nor can he be defied without judgment. Oh, the Lord bears with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, but in the end his righteous judgment descends upon them. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What a point is the same point is made by these plagues. What a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. So that all of us would be warned today that if we hear his voice, that our hearts would not be hardened to it. That we would remember what befell Pharaoh for his hardening. So that we would flee to the divinely appointed refuge to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Do we flee in our time of sin to more darkness? Do we flee to our own righteousness, our own ability to get us out of this mess? Or do we flee to Christ who is our only refuge? Do we seek artificial light which does not dispel darkness? Or our pious works that are done as a in an effort to show our righteousness are these artificial is that artificial light that does nothing to dispel the darkness but if we do all things and work according to the righteousness of Christ that is the light that dispels darkness for the source of that work is God himself and we know God is light what a grace of God it is if you are here this morning and you have been called out of this darkness into the kingdom of light if you are like the Israelites who had light in their dwellings what it must have looked like to the Israelites when they could see their surroundings and yet there was a limit there was a a blackness there was a darkness there at the border of Goshen and Egypt that they would know that those that serve the gods of the Egyptians would fall into that darkness yet they were found by God's grace and his light for the light was as supernatural as the darkness, as, peak, as Pink so aptly observes. It emanated most probably from the Shekinah glory. The Egyptians had a darkness which they could not light up. Israel had a light which they could not put out. 
See, the Lord was displaying to them himself in the display and the contrast between light and darkness. The assumption here by A.W. Pink is that that light was not that the sun shone in that area, but that God provided light supernaturally to the Egyptians. And that supernatural light in Scripture is known as the Shekinah glory, a display of God's glory seen so yet not the fullness of God because God's fullness cannot be perceived by finite creatures but overwhelmingly pure when this glory is brought before Isaiah in Isaiah 6 he's overcome by it he doesn't say Depart from me, as Pharaoh does, but because the Lord is acting upon his heart, he confesses that he is an unclean man and he serves an unclean people. He's in need of something to overcome or something to satisfy the effects of that light upon his sin. And we know in that passage that the cherubim takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips and tells him that his sins have been forgiven. Here is a display of God's grace, of God's discriminating grace. First, it's his grace because it's undeserved. We know that the Israelites are a people not of something that God looked in the nations of the world and said, this is the strongest nation. I choose this nation as my people. This is the most prettiest nation. I choose this nation as my people. This is the most successful nation. No, he actually takes a wanderer and an exile out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He takes Abraham, who was fatherless, and from him would be birthed nations, but specifically this nation whom God would call to himself. This grace is undeserved, for that is all that grace is. That's all that grace can be. But it's also discriminating. It comes only to the Israelites. So it is the grace of God that comes only to those whom he has predestined and foreknew. Those who he, have, he has set apart before the foundation of the world. The elect of God. It's God's discriminating grace that shines upon the Israelites here. It's on display as an example, as a, as a type of the discriminating grace that will come upon all his people. This light and darkness is, is a paradigm of God's deliverance throughout Scripture. And it's also a signal, it will be a signal of a new exodus. Turn with me to Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, beginning in verse... 19, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness 
will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. And the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Such is the promise of the Lord to bring his people into the kingdom to come. That kingdom is inaugurated in space and time in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John's gospel has fashioned his gospel around this idea. Let's look at John chapter 1. We know this is the prologue to John's gospel. It sets uh, theology proper in place. It, it tells us wonderful things of things unheard, things unseen. It tells us in verse 4, in him, speaking of the, of the word that was with God, who was in the beginning, with, who was God, who was in the beginning with God, creator of all things. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John begins his gospel by saying there was darkness, and now there is light. Look at verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. There is the darkness, and yet the true light comes and enlightens every man. Verse 29. So we have darkness. We have a, an allusion to the ninth plague, darkness and light. So it's fitting that in verse 29, there's an allusion to the tenth plague. The next day he saw Jesus coming, speaking of John the Baptist, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And again, in verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The light coming into the world is assumed to be a light that atones for the darkness of those that are being called into the light. Christ himself says it in chapter 8 of John's gospel in verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. It is said that that darkness of plague, that utter darkness, is said that it was a darkness that gropes, that causes groping, like a blind person gropes at their surroundings. 
Such was that darkness to be upon the Egyptians. And so here Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness. We might say he would not grope in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The Spirit continuing to expand and interpret his, wor his word. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Beginning of verse 13, Paul writing to the church at Colossae, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption out of that darkness. Redemption from that utter and complete judgment of God upon our unrighteousness. Upon every wicked thought, word, and deed. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And how has the Lord provided this to us? Well, we're seeing it. It's implied in what we're reading. So if you'd like to turn to Second Peter chapter one, we'll see it in word form and an explanation in Second Peter 1, verse 19. Peter says prior to that that they, they were the ones, they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw upon that hill the glory of Christ. And the words of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What does he say? So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. It is by the word of God alighting upon the heart of the sinner who dispels the darkness of that judgment because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul told the Gentiles in, Eph in Ephesians that they were cast out. They were not a part of the people of God, and yet now they're being brought in, and now they're into God's kingdom, who we've seen is a kingdom of light. And so we see this in our passage that we have the darkness coming, the Israelites being set apart by being given light, and then Pharaoh calling Moses and Aaron back to him and and now giving his final compromise. If there's only one compromise that I can have, he says to Moses and Aaron, is that do not take your herds with you. Take your little ones. I'm, I come away from that. But do not take your herds. In essence, Pharaoh was tempting 
Moses and Aaron to leave behind something in the darkness. Don't take all you have with you. Don't entrust everything to this journey. Leave your herds. Moses and Aaron respond as the Apostle John wrote that they essentially say we are children of the light so we must walk in the light. We must take all our herds and our flocks every hoof. The flocks and the herds of this pastoral people constituted the principal part of what they owned. And they proclaim their utter dependence upon God when they say we will listen to his very word. We've seen the darkness. We've, we're living in the light, so we will depend on his every word. And Moses says that they do not know how they are to worship yet. When he replies to Moses, he said that there were some aspects of their sacrificial system that were still to be revealed. So Moses and the Israelites could not presume what they so far understood about how, when, and why to provide sacrifices and burnt offerings to God. And so they say not a hoof is to be left behind. So it is in our life. If you've been called out of the domain of darkness, not called, just but delivered out of the domain of darkness, placed into the kingdom of light, let it be in our hearts out of gratitude that not a hoof of our possessions, not a, a hoof in anything we own would be withheld from God. Not a hoof in, in anything that we are, but all that we have and all that we hold is at the disposal of the Lord. The question here is, when we respond in gratitude in this deliverance, the issue, issue raised is whether or not God has a title to all that we have. In the light of the word, the issue is decisively settled. Nothing that we have is really ours. All is committed to us as stewards. And so we can see that they were to go and serve the Lord. They were serving Egypt. They were to go and serve the Lord. Desmond Alexander says that for God's call is not the call to let his people go so that they may be free and independent in their pursuit of happiness or of whatever other ends or goals they individually happen to prefer. Instead, the call of God issued repeatedly in Exodus is let my people go that they may serve me. This primarily is comprised in the worship of God here in with the Israelites as they were to take their flocks because they were to worship God with them. So we see that in our day and age that we would pray the Lord's hand to preserve us from compromising our worship. There are many who seek to compromise 
to compromise the service of God. They consent to the worship of God, but they wish to do it in their own way and at their own time. And so to nullify its design. We must recognize that we are not only in need of freedom from the bondage of sin, but also in need of the means to offer thanksgiving for that deliverance. The threefold structure of the Heidelberg Catechism is all carried into the Orthodox Catechism that we're using in our catechism class is that the first part is that we would see the greatness of our sin and misery, but it's personalized, the greatness of my sin and misery. The second part is how I am delivered from all sin and misery. And the third part is the thanks I owe to God for this deliverance. We go back to Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 1 before he speaks about Christ and being delivered. He has a prayer for the Colossians in verses 9 through 12. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The life we live, we live not to ourselves. We have not been freed from the bondage of sin, from the domain of darkness to go and now live independent Christian lives however we see fit. But like the lepers that are cleansed and one returns to do what? To offer thanksgiving to Christ for his deliverance. This is the tenor of the Christian life. This is what it means to be those who walk in the light because we utterly depend on God to be in the light and to give us the strength to walk in the light so we go to him to see how is it that we would walk in a manner worthy. Not to earn, but having received, bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that we would see that the believer's deliverance from the domain of darkness is not one to autonomy, but one into gracious service to the God that is light. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, for it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. For within it, Lord, we have the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. It is the spirit at work, enlivening our hearts, dispelling the darkness. 
O Lord, that you would strengthen us in the knowledge of Christ's redemption to know that you have freed us to walk in the light. May we do so with joy and gladness as we serve you in all circumstances. In the power of your spirit and in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.